Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. While your hands and elbows are limbered up, reach for your Bible. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be at the end of Acts chapter 2 today. And as you're turning there, I just, you need to know, I made a discovery this week. Yesterday, my wife and I, I told you I'd update you along the way on empty nest progress. Yesterday, I went with her to Costco. (laughs) Did you know that you can get pizza and a soft drink for less than $3? (laughs) So I got two. Now, here's how that relates to the sermon today. In absolutely no way whatsoever. So you're welcome. Today, I want us to continue in our study of the book of Acts, a series we're calling Wind and Rain. And the text I want to hold out before us as we pursue it today begins in verse 42, 43, rather. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much of their time, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the good will of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. One day, Peter and John were, were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, at, at three o'clock in the afternoon. And, and a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But but Peter said, "I, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he he entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw. and, And they saw him walking and praising. And they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms by the beautiful gate at the temple. And they were filled with wonder. And amazement at what had happened to him. 
this is the reading of the sacred word. It's reliable and it can be trusted. Will you pray with me? God, even now as we yield to the movement of your spirit among us, we pray that with an open word and with open hearts, your spirit would do something in us that only your spirit can do. Because we hear you calling. Sometimes we just don't know how to pick up the phone. Sometimes we pick up the phone and don't know what to do with what we hear. But by faith, we confess to you that if you move in and around us today and show us Jesus, then we will fix our eyes upon him and he upon us, and we will never be the same. We pray that in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So today is part four of our ongoing series in the book of Acts called Wind and Rain, and we have been marveling at what has happened so far. So far, we see Jesus, the resurrected one, gather with his disciples on the mount called Olivet, and as he ascends, he says, I want you to wait for the Spirit. And several days had passed, and on the day of Pentecost, waiting eagerly for the unknown, we're told that the Spirit descends upon the people. And, and there's a, a sound of a mighty rushing wind. And something like tongues of fire fall upon them. And they begin to hear the marvelous deeds of God in languages that they understand. Now, the thing that captivates me about that passage in Acts chapter 2 is how all-inclusive it is. We're told that in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. The old, the young, the male, the female, the pretty, the ugly, those in the middle like me, pretty ugly. <laughs> and in every possible way, without exception, God will infuse within the followers of Jesus the capacity to do things they never thought imaginable. That may sound pretty audacious to you. One of the most audacious claims that we have in our faith is that God would choose to abide among people. That when I say things to you, and I have now going on the better part of nine years, when I say things to you like the the presence and the action of God is in you. It may be more than just something that sounds audacious to you. It may sound absurd. Because if you're like most of us, we take inventory of our lives every day and we see the plainness of our lives, the ordinariness of our lives, and we recognize how we have wrecked in some places our own lives, and we think because of things we've done or where we've been or what we've not done and where we've never been, we think that we are not somehow among those with whom God would choose to abide. 
But I want to suggest to you today that the Bible is soaked. It is dripping wet with example after example of how God is attempting to demonstrate to you God's deepest desire to know you and be known by you. And it began in the very beginning with our stories of creation. In the story of creation, we already talked about the reality that God's spirit, the ruach of God, the wind, the breath, the presence of God was hovering over the chaotic waters of the deep. And then God created and eventually God said, let there be light. And God, in creation, established the possibility of communion with human beings. One of the most beautiful expressions in the creation stories is where God, in the second telling of the story in Genesis 2, is seen as an intimate God, one who stoops down in the mud and takes up from the Adama, the ground, the dirt, the mud, takes up from the Adama, the Adam, and then nose to nose, off to off, breathes the breath of life. The spirit, the wind, the ruach, the presence of God into that created being. And we're told things in the story of Eden about how God and Adam walk together in the cool of the day. The presence and the action of God have been desiring to live in and among humankind from the very beginning. Later, if you move a little further in Scripture and you hear the story of an enslaved people, the people of Israel, enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, are liberated from their enslavement under the leadership of Moses. God sends them and, and delivers them from their enslavement. And on their way out, they face this sea that can't be crossed. And God shows up in a cloud by day in a pillar of fire by night and the waters part and they experience their own baptism into a new identity as the people of God and every time they would look to see the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night it was a visible external outward demonstration that they were not alone that God was with them but there is where God is there and I am here and this is my experience but at least it's a little comforting that God is with us so they camp out at the foot of a mountain called Sinai or depending on what part of the Old Testament you're reading Mount Horeb and they're camped at the foot and they know that Moses is going up to the mountain and it's far removed from them because only Moses can go. But on the top of the mountain they see the lightning and they hear the wind and they feel the rumble of God's presence. And it may be that at times we, we know that in the storm that seems so far away God may be doing something. But at least it's comforting to know God is in sight. And the whole while, though they were kept separate from God in, in, in their own minds, separate from him, God was up to something in the light and in the wind, in the action that was happening on the mountain. God was forging a covenant with them. And it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that sometimes when we feel with, our, with the bones in our body that God is 
is nowhere to be found. That, that all we see is lightning and wind and clouds and thunder we hear and the fire we see, that's all we see. It's important to remember that God is always up to using that storm to forge identity in us. Yeah. Well, then later in the wilderness, as the pillar of fire guides them and the cloud reminds them that they are not alone, no matter how far the wilderness goes and how unknown it may feel, that God is with them. And there's an outside exterior reminder. So God commands them to build a quasi-permanent one. They build a tabernacle. And we read about this. Do you remember the tabernacle in our study of Exodus? And say it with me. Leviticus. Because they built this structure, this kind of tent within a tent, within a tent that was designed to be structured in a way that reflected the order of God's good and ordered universe where God is at the center and emanating out from God are various invitations and opportunities to access God. And in our contemporary sophisticated minds, we think, oh my gosh, how many hurdles do you have to jump through to get to God? But realize how progressive it was to even suggest that there was a God in the universe who could be accessed. And we're told in the 40th chapter of Exodus that on the day that the tabernacle was complete, the smoke and fire of God entered into the tabernacle. And there the people had forever in front of them, no matter where they pitched camp and struck camp and pitched it again and struck it again, no matter where they wandered in their wilderness journey, they had a permanent reminder because as long as they could see the fire and and smell the smoke that had filled the tabernacle, they knew that God's God's presence and God's action were with them. The the smoke filled the the tabernacle so much that the text tells us that Moses couldn't even go in. It was that smoky until you turn the page to the book of Leviticus and hear our favorite word opening that line, vaikra. Some of you had a good warm fuzzy memory just come over your, some of you had a little PTSD come over you just to, vaikra. Come near the audacious claim that the God who now we say is close enough to be found in the back of a tent is now saying, come and abide with me. Yeah. So as long as the tabernacle stood. And then about 950, they occupy the land, they build a kingdom, they unify their kingdom, their tribes under David. And he has this massive kingdom and then his son Solomon builds a permanent version of the temporary tabernacle. Only this time, man, it is gorgeous. It's this gleaming, towering edifice of stone and brick and sticks and and gold and silver, and it's there forever. So they think. And in two places we read about a great dedication ceremony in 1 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. We read about this day when they dedicated the temple and now God was going to have a permanent place on earth. And we are told that in those two places when they had finished constructing, the Shekinah of God came down and filled the temple 
And now forever there would be an address for God. There would be a place where heaven and earth meet. There would be a place where divinity and humanity can confer. And it's not simply that in Jerusalem, as long as they saw the wind, the fire, the smoke in the temple, they were reminded of God's nearness. But the truth is the temple, the Solomonic temple, created not just a reminder that allowed us to, well, to be made new, to be forgiven, to have relationships restored between the people and God, to keep the covenant. There there was not only a temple rhythm and a ritual and a calendar that kept everyone spiritually well from year to year, but the temple created a system where not just the presence but the action of God could be manifest among people. So now there were systems of funding that allowed programming For the widows, the orphans, the stranger, the resident alien in their land so that those who were poor did not go without. Those who were hungry could eat. And the temple leadership was called to establish those systems of compassion and mercy and and restorative justice. You know why? Because that's the action of God. That's God's action in the world. And now the temple, we had an address, a return address. For the presence and action of God until about 587 B.C. And the Babylonians came. And the Babylonians came and they laid siege to Jerusalem and they sacked the city and they destroyed the temple. It all came tumbling down and they gathered the most notable among them, those who were educated and leaders, those who were religious, and they took them into Babylonian exile. And as they walked the long, slow slog away from Jerusalem into a land they never knew, they looked over their shoulder and they saw smoldering Every former confidence that God was with them and God's action would keep them. And in the midst of exile, we hear the poets begin to write, the songwriters step forward. And that's why we hear the Psalm 138 or 137 in my mind here. I hear the echo of there in Babylon by the rivers. We hung up our harps. Because our tormentors asked us for mirth, saying, hey, sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land? Isn't it, isn't it interesting that sometimes all of the former temples that used to prop up our life, when they are taken away, it leads us to the brink of potential despair or faith. You know, I've said for a while that this pandemic I've used the word apocalyptic, right? I've said in the word apocalypsis, which means the revealing or the uncovering of something that used to be covered. In the pandemic, we have apocalyptically revealed patterns in us that that maybe had gone for a long time unnoticed. But it's not just apocalyptic. Do you know what this pandemic has revealed? It's, it's, let me try that again. It's exilic. Because in many ways, Some of the former ways that in our old temples that 
gave us sure and certain confidences of the way things are and the way life is held together and the way we came to understand God. Those temples, when they are threatened and when they fall apart, it leaves whole communities of churches in, in, the, in the nation asking, well, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange and foreign land where, where we are now? Well, this is why prophets like Jeremiah and Nehemiah and Ezra, when the exiles returned, they convinced them to rebuild the temple, to rebuild a second temple that was glorious again, beautiful, created the system of confidence, created a reminder that right there in the middle of the temple at the back of the Holy of Holies, there is the presence and action of God, a reminder, but curiously, And this is important. There is no record of the Shekinah glory of God descending and occupying in all of our sacred texts, no record of it occupying the second temple. But the second temple is the one Jesus knew. The second temple is is the one that he grew up knowing, but during the second temple period is, well, there was one baby born who later we would refer to as, well, the light of the world. And this baby would be unlike any other baby because in this one, according to the writer of Colossians, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In many ways, he was a walking, talking temple of God where heaven and earth merge, where divinity and humanity are both fully present and this one we call Emmanuel God with us absurd as it may sound audacious as it may feel this one shows us that God is with us and so in the second temple period Jesus well that's where he went to be dedicated by his parents it was this temple that Jesus went and was found teaching when his parents lost him and couldn't find him. He was teaching the, the teachers of the law, the scribes and Pharisees. It was this temple where Jesus saw some things, where Jesus saw some things that shaped his ministry and shaped his teaching about the kingdom because it was in this temple, the second temple, where a woman was brought to Jesus, caught in adultery. And it's in that moment he He demonstrates now his awareness that sometimes religion can be used to abuse rather than set free, to misinterpret scripture and manipulate it for power and for control. And he says to those men who brought her to him, all who are without sin, cast the first stone. It was in that temple, the the second temple, where Jesus was approached by people trying to trap him. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And he knew that while he's answering this question, as many as four or maybe five political parties are around him listening for his answer. So he wisely said, give to Caesar the things that bear the image of Caesar and give to God the things that bear the image of God. And in that answer demonstrated the reality of what he saw and demonstrated and learned and taught. And that is that religion can be 
co-opted by politics. And in so co-opting religion, people can be coerced rather than transformed. And it was there in the temple when he walked during a festival around to the money changers and he saw that they were exploiting the poor because the poor were coming in from out of town, out of the country, and trying to exchange their currency for temple currency because you, you can't buy doves and goats and, and lambs without temple currency. So they would hike the prices up and exploit them. And it made him angry because the temple was initially meant to, to, be, to be the presence and the action of God liberating people. And he turned tables over in a fit of righteous rage at what it had become. And yet you and I know now, looking back, that he was the temple all along. It's him. It's in him the fullness of the presence and action of God would reside. And so he taught things. He spoke in parables. He said there is a way to experience the presence and action of God in a way that, well, let's call it a kingdom where the kingdom, the reign, the realm of God is like finding, I don't know, like a, like a treasure in a field. You don't know it's there, you stumble upon it, and when you see it, you're like, I'll sell everything I have to purchase this field because it's got the treasure hidden in it. Or he said it's a little bit like finding a, a pearl of great price and you search the whole world over and you've been there, you've done that, you've had everything that is impressive, everything that would seem to satisfy every material need, and yet... You come to this one pearl of great price and you realize it is more costly than anything else. So I'll sell everything that I have in order to pursue and purchase this pearl of great price. Jesus taught saying you are closer to the kingdom than you think. He had people from outside the religion come. People who are on the outskirts, the margins of the collective social consciousness of people. And he would draw them to the middle of their consciousness in order to... Remind them that they are closer to the kingdom than they think. That faith comes by seeing and hearing the, the presence and action of God that is already in and around you. And they crucified him. And as he was crucified, he became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So in crushing him to the earth, God vindicated him by raising him to new life on the third day. And over the course of 40 days, he appeared to more uh, of the disciples uh, day by day, appearing to them more than 500 again and again. And this is where we pick up in the book of Acts because he says, now go and wait. And they waited. And on Pentecost, Luke deliberately uses the same language that has preceded every other theophany, every other experience with God up to that point. Because we read that on the day of Pentecost, the sound of a mighty rushing wind came and something like tongues of fire rested on each of them. And each one was given a tongue, a language, to speak the mysteries of God. And through the Spirit, they were able to recognize that the young and the old, the male and the female, the experienced, the inexperienced, those who looked like the others and those who looked nothing like the others, those with one accent, those with the other, those who had and those who had not, 
those who were educated and those who were not educated, had equally been poured out the the spirit of God's presence and action in each of them. And contrary to their own lack of confidence, they were filled with the power of God's presence and action. And this is what brings us to the text that we read a moment ago. Do you know that Paul's whole theology of temple is based on this reality that right now in you is the presence and action of God? Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? In 2 Corinthians he said, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ephesians 2 we hear, in him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. That together you and I are put together as a dwelling place for the Most High. And what, what Luke is doing in the first part of Acts is something extraordinary. He's holding up the old temple structure that had begun to collapse and holding up the new temple structure, which is not made by bricks and sticks, but it's made by hearts of flesh. And people who follow Jesus and call him Lord. And this new temple system is mobile. And wherever they go, they have the capacity to embody the presence and action of God in the same way the old system system did. In many ways, in in Acts chapter 3, the old temple system is found in dereliction of duty because everything we read about it a moment ago is a demonstration of the new temple, you and me, bringing into the world the action of God. So when they would sell all their possessions and pool their money and make sure that those who had not had, when, when they would collect for the poor and care for those who were hungry, when they would welcome the, the widow, the orphan, the resident alien, when they did this, it was an expression of their awareness that they are the temple and all of God's justice and love and compassion, if it is to be experienced, must be experienced through us. And so Peter and John come to this man at the gate called Beautiful, and they bring him here. It's a beautiful juxtaposition because they bring him to the old temple. And on their way to the 3 o'clock hour to pray and do all these spiritual things, to pray, to give alms, to worship, there's somebody sitting on the outside of the gate of the temple. And now Peter and James, they stop on their way into the old temple. And they look at him clearly. They gaze at him and he gazes at them. Do you realize the power of what is possible when we, the temples of God, stop long enough to look into someone else and see not only their humanity, but the Christ who loves them and who died for them? See, it's hard to sometimes believe that we can embody the power of God's presence because we know who we are. But this is why Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. See, we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made known. This this extraordinary gift comes from God and does not come from us. Today, I want to leave you with a verse from 2 Timothy. He, he, He speaks about the mystery that is in us. 
the mystery that sometimes we downplay, that sometimes we don't recognize the potential power of. And he says this, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. To fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't question the reality of the thing that is in you, the mystery of God's love. If you are in Christ, then Christ abides in you. And the presence and action of every former temple before now cumulatively resides in you to be present and active in the life of somebody else. Somebody in your family or somebody at work or some stranger you meet at lunch today. So fan it. And maybe you're like, I'd love to fan it into flame, but I don't know how to do that. Maybe, maybe you don't know how to pray to open up your life to the God who wants to, to abide in you and to call you out. If you don't, then maybe you just use these words right where you are. God, I recognize that I forever have been putting my trust in structures and expressions of what I thought may have been you, but in the end may have always led me to disappointment. I've tried to fix myself, save myself, forgive myself. I've tried to get to a place where I pick myself up out of this hole that I have dug. But I confess to you now that I can't do that, that I've come to the end of me, and the end of me is the beginning of you. And I ask that you would forgive me of, of all that I've done to break life, and I ask you to heal me of all the ways that life has broken me, and I, I wish to follow you wherever it is you lead, to embody your own presence in this world, to, to walk alongside you wherever you lead me. And I pray that in the name of Christ.